Paddock Pass Podcast. Paddock Pass Podcast. Paddock Pass Podcast. Paddock Pass Podcast. David Emmett should appear after you say Paddock Pass Podcast three times in a row. But unbelievably, David Emmett is not here this week. It's just myself, Stephen English, and Neil Morrison here for this week's Paddock Pass Podcast. And today we'll look at some of the changes in the MotoGP rider market. We'll look at uh, the Mugello Grand Prix and we'll have a brief preview of Donington World Superbikes. So, Neil Morrison, without further ado, we'll get started on this week's show. And uh, Neil, obviously, great weekend in Italy and a great weekend at Mugello. It was a fantastic weekend at Mugello, yeah. We had, uh, it, it started off rather ominously on, on Thursday and then Friday morning with, uh, with some r- uncharacteristic rain, but um, what soon followed with uh, with Rossi getting his pole position on Saturday. And then three stunning races, racing of the absolute highest quality on uh, on Sunday was uh, was really, really something else. Yeah, it was edge of the seat stuff, Neil. Like I was sitting at home watching it and uh, I can't remember three better races where it all came down to the last lap on each race, last corner on each race. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the combined winning margin of uh, of the winner of all three classes, if you add it together, was uh, was less than a tenth of a second. It was zero point zero eight seconds. Shows just how close everything was. Uh, you know, not just in Moto GP, but Moto Two and Moto Three. We had uh, we really were uh, quite fortunate to see that. Yeah, it really was the perfect example, Neil, of why. Motorcycle racing is the best sport on the planet. And I think uh, when you combine that with then sitting down to watch BSB afterwards, it was a great day of racing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you were sitting in the armchair like uh, like you were for the weekend and you didn't have to run around like a blue arse fly <laughs> chasing up people for uh, for interviews and quotes and stuff like that, I can imagine it must have been uh, quite a pleasant experience. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie. There are some advantages of what's happening this year, but this was definitely one of the weekends where I really wished I was on the ground in Italy. And it already started early in the week, Neil, with a lot of announcements in the rider market as well. And obviously enough, the big news is that Maverick Vinales has signed to partner Valentino Rossi at Yamaha. But a lot of knock-on effects from that. Danny Pedrosa stays at Repsol Honda. Andre Iannone replaces Vinales at Suzuki. And we also saw Andre Davizioso confirmed at Ducati. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We um, we spent pretty much the, the majority of the, of the weekend in Le Mans at the French Grand Prix uh, trying to work out what exactly was going on with uh, with Movie Star Yamaha. So it was, it was good to go into the, the Italian Grand Prix with a bit more clarity with uh, with regards to the riders market and, and what's going on. Um, Vinales obviously made, made that step which I think is is, is fantastic for, fantastic for him. Um, perhaps a little bit of a shame for for the for the you know for MotoGP in general because having Vinales on the Suzuki um, with Lorenzo on the Ducati next year, I think you would have four guys, four different marks, um, you know, competing for podium places at most Grand Prix if that was the case. Uh, but still, I think you know Vinales will slot into that Yamaha team um, straight away. Will be more or less a podium contender, and um, you know I, I expect him to challenge you know, for podiums and perhaps even race wins occasionally next year. Yeah, and, and having Ian One on the Suzuki as well, it's not as if Suzuki have had a bad replacement for Vinales there. If you remember back to last year, Ian One was one of the stars consistently in the top five, a lot of podiums, showed how strong he can be. And this is a guy that contended for a one two five championship, could easily have won a Moto2 championship. He's come up a lot of experience in MotoGP and this is the first year where he hasn't really made that progression year on year. But uh, it's easy to look at Argentina and some other instances he's had this year and just get yourself clouded in, in 
looking at how much potential he has on that bike for next year. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you just need to speak to to Carl Crutzlow, who had the benefit of um, of seeing Ian O'Neill's data when he was a Ducati, when Carl was a factory Ducati rider, and, and Ian O'Neill was was more or less on factory equipment in the the Pramac squad. Um, Carl always said that the, the things he saw with Ian O'Neill's throttle uh, control was quite impressive. Um, he's clearly a massive natural talent. Sometimes you you suspect that he might not have the you know the kind of uh, the, the, the searing intelligence of a Rossi or, a, you know, the intensity of thought of like a Lorenzo to really make it to the absolute top level. Um, but there's no doubt that he's, he's fast. Um, and Suzuki have, you know, Suzuki have got a, a definite podium guy um, on their bike for next year. Um, but it was quite interesting to see the impact um, of Iannone's rival on the Suzuki squad. Um, Alicia, Alicia Spargo in particular was really quite livid with uh, with how the signing was handled. And, well, it'll be interesting to see who'll be, who'll be lining up with uh, Ian O'Neill and Suzuki squad in 2017. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about what actually reaction we saw from Alej, because obviously when you see him talking in interviews on TV or when you listen or when you, you read on different websites what he said, like obviously enough, it was clear how much he was hurt by this and not being in the loop at all. But uh, if you've got the chance to go and sign Ian O'Neill, I don't, I don't see why Elias feels that he should have been involved in the conversation. Obviously enough, he thinks that it's a sign of disrespect to him, but at the end of the day, with all the greatest respect in the world to Elias Spagro, he's not going to be a guy that's going to win a MotoGP World Championship for you, whereas Ian Oney could potentially have that uh, ability. Yeah, it's true. I think, uh, you know, Alish, uh, Alish admitted as much. He said that, you know, for Suzuki, um, Ian Oney was pretty much the best, the best rider they could have signed to replace Vinales. Um, but I think he was quite, uh, he was quite hurt by the handling of the affair. Um, Davide Brivio went out to Japan straight after the, the French Grand Prix on the Monday, um, then learned of Vinales' wanting to leave uh, during that week. And he was in, uh, in, 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 discussion with with Suzuki's top management out in Japan um, and they basically you know said about trying to trying to think of uh, think of a suitable replacement um, from Brivio being out in Japan and coming back to Europe uh, I don't think Aspargro was was made aware of of Iannone's sign in, a, in an official capacity I think Aspargro found out about uh, Iannone's arrival through his mechanics or something like that so I think he was he was hurt in that sense you know that uh, that no one had kind of kept him in the loop and you know perhaps in some respects you know quite justifiably a little bit paranoid you know as to you know it was clear that whenever Suzuki came into MotoGP that they had a strategy of you know getting a, a fairly proven rider with with good experience um, teamed up alongside a, a novice well a rookie a class rookie with bags of potential um, and you know you have to wonder whether Suzuki are going to continue with that strategy going forward you know and if that is the case then you know it's not looking good for Spargo because Ian O'Neill and him are roughly the same age I think they're both 26 years old uh, there is a, a very very promising and exciting uh, racer in Moto2 that has his eyes set on a factory seat for 2017 by the name of Alex Rins um, and you'd have to say that Rins and Ian O'Neill would possibly be a more attractive prospect to, to a team manager like David Brivio than having two guys, um, two top six guys for sure in Alicia Spargro and, and Andrea Noni. Um, but as you said, Alicia Spargro, is he going to be a guy that's going to be regularly getting you Grand Prix podiums? Possibly not. Rins, maybe not next year, but in his second year, quite possibly. Yeah, I, I think it's not even a case of possibly not with Alicia. We've seen more than enough data from 
elate over his years, whether it's in the lower classes or in MotoGP, to be able to know what kind of a rider he is. Blindingly fast over one lap, but uh, we've just seen since probably Catalonia last year, if you remember, he had his uh, pole position there last year. But from that point onwards, Maverick really did set himself out as the leading Suzuki rider for the second half of last year. This season, Aleish has done very well in comparison to Vinales, but you'd have to say if you're a team boss, is it enough to justify keeping him over Renz? For my money, it's not, because we know that with Ianone, you've probably got a potential top rider there. And I think if you've got the chance to go and sign Alex Renz, Try and get him on a, a three-year contract and see if you can get stability from him and then bring him forward for the next few years. I think that's the move that makes sense for Suzuki. Much as I'd like to see Aleish stay on that bike. And I know from talking to people like Tom O'Kane, he's he's always raved about how good Aleish actually is for his feedback and for his speed and for his talent. But we live in a paddock where it's results-based and over the course of his career... Alex Rince has shown an awful lot more than Alicia Spagaro to warrant being that factory rider. Now, admittedly, for Suzuki, they might well look at it and say, we want to have some consistency, and that's where Alicia does come in as being useful. But whenever you've seen Suzuki sign a pre-contract agreement with Johan Zarco already, the talks that are likely to happen with Rince, it's difficult to see Alicia staying on that bike. Absolutely, yeah. And I think you just touched on it there. Um... The worry about getting rid of Alish Aspargaro would mean there is no continuity. And considering that Suzuki has built, you know, quite a, you know, very, very good bike this year and has built up some good momentum with, um, you know, more or less top six finishes in every race, I think, maybe bar Argentina. Um, I think there's a worry from some members of Suzuki's top management that getting rid of Aspargaro would lose some of that continuity. Um, but then... I don't know, whispers, you know, whispers that I heard at Magello were also saying that certain aspects of that management can see the, you know, can see the shining light in Rins' talent. Um, so it's really about, you know, who's going to win over in this argument um, in, in the kind of Suzuki management circles. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that that bike clearly has a lot more potential in it this year than what I think a lot of people expected. And whenever you've got that potential... Maybe you'll also look at it and say, you know, two two years of Alicia Spagaro, is he going to get us those Grand Prix wins? Or at the end of two years, if we've got Alex Rins there, will Rins then be ready to be a title contender in the Premier class? And that's where I think that the benefit of taking a gamble, because it is a gamble anytime that you bring anyone up from Moto2. At the end of the day, if you look at it, Stefan Bradl's a Moto2 champion, Tito Rabat, Paula Spagaro. These guys haven't really been able to show consistently what they can what what I think everyone expects an intermediate class champion to do when they move up to MotoGP and I think when you look at it it's only really Mark Marquez that's been able to step up and perform as you'd expect a world champion to be able to do so that's where maybe they look at it and say maybe it's worth taking this gamble give him two years on that bike and then hopefully we'll be able to hold on to him because our bike is better in two years than it is now. Whereas with Vinales, it's a case of the best bike on the grid comes calling and it's difficult to turn that down. Yeah. And I remember at uh, Coda, I was talking to Kevin Schwantz about it. And I asked Kevin, obviously in his experience, because he turned down all those opportunities for years to stay at Suzuki. What is it that makes a top rider turn down the advances from Honda, from Yamaha, from whoever? And what he said was it's the chance to build something special, have more of a say in 
who you can have as your teammate, who works on your bikes, different things like that, and then being able to build something special. That's what made him stay at Suzuki. But obviously for Vinales, the chance to learn from Rossi for two years and then be Yamaha's leading rider is what sways him towards replacing Lorenzo. And for my money, I think I think Vinales makes the right call to sign for, for Yamaha. What did you think of it, Neil, whenever the news was finally confirmed. Obviously, it doesn't come as a major surprise to anyone. And and indeed, actually, on, on Crash.net, Neil, Hughes were able to have that news um, just before most people had actually broken the confirmation. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, I think it made sense. I think uh, maybe, uh, you know, if Inyalis was having doubts as to where he needs to go 2017, perhaps the, the sort of the news that, uh, that, that Danny Pedroza was close to a deal at Yamaha, uh, that, that news breaking on the Saturday at Le Mans, maybe that was enough to just make him realise, okay, you know, this is a, a really good opportunity that I just can't pass up. Um, yeah, I and mean, having Rossi, um, uh, you know, I think Vinales has said all along that um, that having having Rossi on the other side of the garage, being able to learn just the method, how he works, um, you know, how he's kind of, that, that kind of work ethic that, that Rossi has is kind of methods of going through the, a race weekend. You know, he really sees that as as key to improving himself. And you know, you only have to really speak to Maverick for for a short amount of time to realize that he's a very driven uh, young man who you know doesn't really care about anything other than being a world champion. Then Jarvis was speaking about the reasons for Vinales' signing on the Thursday, and you know that's the that's the thing he said that, that stood out um, you know ahead of everything else. It was it was the fact that he is so driven um, that he only wants to be world champion, and you know he won't really be satisfied until then. Yeah, because obviously enough, we saw in one two fives as well. He famously fell out with his team and uh, walked away from them uh, mid season. Came back then, obviously for the last race. But we saw right from the start that I wouldn't say loyalty isn't the key thing for Vinales, but winning is the key thing, and that's where moving to Yamaha makes so much sense. And I think it, it is the kind of match made in heaven in a lot of ways. If you lose Lorenzo. You need to have someone that can step up and and uh, replace him. And Vinales definitely looks like he can do that. And you touched on it there, Neil, just the Pedroza to Yamaha uh, story from Le Mans. Obviously, that was a story that uh, really took on a life of its own over the course of the French Grand Prix weekend. And uh, this week, we saw Pedroza confirm that Repsol Honda for another two years. And it, it didn't really come as a major surprise that this did happen. But uh, obviously enough... You get a lot of fans talking in terms of what's Pedro's actually done in the Premier class. How does he keep riding uh, on a factory Honda whenever he hasn't delivered a championship? But he's the rider that makes the most sense for Honda to have alongside Marquez. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, what he did at the end of 2015 uh, was a timely reminder of, of his talents, uh, his abilities, when things are working, uh, when when he has a bike underneath him that he feels is capable of doing something. Um, you know, Pedroza shows that he can still have his day in the sun and still, you know, wipe the floor clean with, with you know, with the best of them. Um, it's just at the moment it seems that that you know the bike underneath him is doesn't allow him to to really feel like he's he's, he's prepared to risk everything uh, push the bike as hard as mark is um but in terms of you know a rider that, that's going to you know play wingman um to to mark who's, who's your number one rider no doubt um and who's able to still get podiums here and there uh, occasional wins perhaps yeah i think um you know there's not really anyone else out there um as good as danny yeah because one of the riders that was linked to that uh, seat was Cal Crutchlow. And obviously enough, it's difficult to see where Honda would be in a position to turn down Pedroza to take Crutchlow. But uh, obviously enough, 
it does show just how few options there really are for those top seats that uh, that Honda may have had because a lot of riders may have looked at it and said, well, it's only Mark that can actually ride that Honda. Is it actually worth to step into that seat? And that's where having someone like Pedroza, a loyal Honda man, he's ridden for Honda his entire career. That's where it makes sense as well to keep him. And for another two years, Pedroza gets to be the, the perfect guy to be teamed with Marquez. He's, he's a guy that doesn't really seem to be, I wouldn't say concerned about being beaten by his teammate. Obviously enough, Pedroza is a triple world champion. He's a very competitive guy, but he's able just to focus on himself rather than on what's on the other side of the garage. And he's low key. He's from what we've been told and what we've seen from years in the paddock. He's low maintenance as well, which that has to play in, in a factor as well for Repsol Honda whenever they're they're in such a difficult situation with that bike where Pedroza is not going to be overly critical of it. It's very rare that uh, he says something he shouldn't. Usually it's a case of for Pedroza, he'll keep quiet and he'll just get on with riding his bike. Yeah, it's usually the case, uh, except uh, we had to, well, he made an exception on, on the Friday at Michello where he basically bore it all, uh, told told the press in his debrief, uh, he was incredibly candid and told us pretty much every single flaw that was, uh, uh, you know, that bike has at the moment, um, you know, a very a kind of, you, you never know whether he's, he's, he is kind of being slightly knowing, he has like a little wry smile on his face but uh, he was asked you know if, if you could choose one one area of the, of the bike that needs improving what would you say and he's like well you know i guess the engine i guess the chassis probably the electronics as well you know um so <laughs> so i agree that uh, for the most part yeah pedroza is a, is a good kind of company man but um you know he let he did kind of let rip um on, on friday at Mugello. i remember there was one day that pedroza was asked I think I think he had qualified like eighth or something like that, and he was asked like, "What what what's wrong with the bike?" And it was a case just like that uh, on Friday where he said something like, uh, "You know, we're we're lacking a little bit in top speed. The bike's not great under braking. As I turn in, it doesn't feel right. When I'm on full lean, I don't have a lot of confidence, and then when I'm exiting the corner, it's just not really that great either." So it was a case of like everything was completely wrong, but uh, <laughs> def- yeah. definitely like I think I think Honda have again sign the right guy to partner with Marquez I think Marquez and Pedroza is a good partnership for Honda I think Vinales and Rossi at uh, Yamaha has a strong partnership and Lorenzo and Dovi at uh, Ducati makes a lot of sense as well Dovi again a man that's low-key can develop a bike and I think he's he's the perfect foil to have alongside Lorenzo Lorenzo's there to win the championship Dovi's not going to win a MotoGP championship. There's nothing wrong with that. He's a guy that I think if all things line up, he can win races. He can definitely get a lot of podiums. But he's a guy there that can take points off your rivals, but not necessarily really challenge Lorenzo, who's going to be there as your team number one. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, which leaves, um, you know, I guess the most of the factory seats uh, sewn up. It kind of leaves, um, you know, the satellite bikes as the ones um, which will attract our attention in the coming weeks. Um, I spoke to Lucio Cecchinello on Thursday, and he said that his number one intention is to stay with Honda um, and also to, meant to keep Kyle Crutchlow in that squad for 2017. Um, he said that there had been sort of informal talks with Davide Brivio. Dorna basically want um, one of the existing satellite teams to run a Suzuki next year um, or an Aprilia. Um, so he had spoken preliminarily to, to Davide Brivio about the possibility of this. Um, but then he planned to he basically said his priority was to stay with Honda. But I think at the moment his budget budget is quite tight. Um, that team doesn't have a Patel sponsor. He... 
I think in this current capacity, we would find it difficult to to do another season um, without that title sponsor. So he was going to speak to Honda at Mugello on the Sunday or the Saturday to try and work out a plan and see if if, if it would be manageable to to stay with them. Um, but it's it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Do you see any situation where there is a Suzuki on the grid as a satellite bike? I, I personally don't. I think it's... It's something that uh, while it would be ideal for the championship, I really just don't see how it gets sorted. And as you said, I think LCR wants to stay with Honda and their long-standing agreement with Honda, their long-standing history makes them perfect to stay with Honda. I, I, I think that if there is a, is a satellite Suzuki, it's only going to go to LCR if they, as you said, can't raise that budget for the Honda. And the, the LCR team staying with Honda, staying with Crutchlow is the move that makes sense in every way. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure really. Um, Brivio told us on on sat- uh, sorry on Saturday. Brivio told us on Thursday that um, that they would find it tough going um, for 2017 to have more than two bikes in the grid. Um, the plan is to try and make Suzuki. Uh, able uh, to do it on in 2018 because Brivio sees that having an extra bike or an extra two bikes in the grid would be hugely beneficial for the factory in terms of you know getting extra information, uh, extra data, maybe being able to bring young riders through. Uh, but you know at the same time they do have an option with Zarco and I can't see Zarco going into that official team. Um, I really can't. So I'm. I'm kind of confused i'm not sure exactly how that is going to work out how that's going to play out through the years arco obviously has a test with suzuki in the summer he's then going to do the suzuki eight hours with suzuki um you know and you kind of have to imagine this arco won't want to stay in moto 2 for another year um he already he tried to get into moto gp for 2016 but couldn't find a suitable ride so you have to imagine that he'll be looking for a way into the class in some shape or form and you know this kind of preliminary agreement with with Suzuki that he has um you have to imagine well I'm, I'm trying to trying to work out exactly where that where he'll fit in yeah and I think that's a that's the struggle for Zarko because he is older than Rins he's it doesn't it doesn't it's difficult to see where he fits in especially whenever he's stayed in Moto2 this year and isn't the class the field as the world champion and that's what the problem is I think if you stay you need to still win the championship whereas while he's got this pre-contract with Suzuki, it'd be interesting to see what the actual terms of that are. Is he still able to talk to other teams until a certain date? Or, you know, is he now locked into this agreement until after the Suzuki eight hours? And then if Suzuki don't sign him, is he then uh, able to talk to other teams? Because all along, the team that made sense for him was KTM because of their, their links to IO, their links to Red Bull, different things like that. But does the KTM even make sense? Because they've got Bradley Smith there that's the same age as Zarco, but has four years MotoGP experience already. And that's what I think is the main issue for Zarco is he is he's he's a lot older than a lot of the riders that can potentially be linked with that seat. Same with someone like Ian One that signed for Suzuki. He's got that MotoGP experience, and he's only a year or two older. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's difficult to know where he's going to slot in there. Um, and as you say, unless he starts wiping the floor with everyone in Moto2 uh, this year, um, you know, is he going to be that attractive proposition for um, for them? I'm not sure. Yeah, and that, that's the problem. When you look at uh, Moto2, Rince obviously has always been that guy that's been talked about as potential 
MotoGP world champion. Sam Lowe's leads the championship now. He's already signed to uh, to move into MotoGP next year with Aprilia. Obviously, that seat beside Lowe's is still available, but uh, I'd be surprised if they don't uh, keep Stefan Bradle. I think he's, he's a guy that makes a lot of sense. When he moved to that team last year, he was instantly faster than Alvaro Bautista. He was instantly... Uh, giving apparently better feedback than Bautista as well. He makes sense to stay there and he also gives Lowe's a known measuring stick. But I've also heard a lot of ch- uh, chatter that uh, Cal Crutchlow approached Aprilia, that uh, Aprilia talked to a couple of other people. So, you know, that seat's still not certain either. Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And another seat that isn't certain is um, the Avintia, well, a Ducati alongside Hector Barber in a vintage caddy. Um, Loris Baz obviously had an awful, awful home GP at Le Mans. He then was really unlucky in Mugello. I think he was struggling up until and before the race. And then, you know, obviously uh, had an unfortunate incident at the start where he broke his foot or fractured his foot. Um, so, yeah, so the, 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 another kind of rumor that was doing the round um, in Mugello was that uh, that team is trying to get Paul Espargaro from Tech 3 across. Um, and indeed, there was an article in, I think, in AS, the Spanish uh, the Spanish sports newspaper, um, which Paolo Giobatti said that they were going to try and tempt Espargaro with a, with a GP17, um, with the you know, latest 2017 machine, which I find kind of difficult to believe. Um you know, surely the GP17 would be going to Lorenzo and to Davizioso in the official squad. Um, but perhaps they would be interested in signing um, Paul Espargo to a factory contract in the same way that Scott Redding has been signed um, and having, you know, a kind of factory rider in a satellite squad to maybe, you know, with the view of potentially replacing Davizioso a year or two years later. Yeah, because for, for me, like, obviously my Spanish is terrible, Neil, but uh, Are you sure? looking at, uh, yeah, I know, like, unless it's Cerveza Grande, I'm fairly fucked. But uh, looking at uh, that Espagaro to Vintia story, and, and it ha- it did the rounds in Magello. A few people did actually, you know, send me a text and, or different things just to, to tell me they'd heard that. And it, it just doesn't make sense. For one thing, why Paul would leave Tech 12 whenever he's actually, he's been he's been getting good results on that bike this year. Hervé wants to keep him. And, you know, it looks like that could be a good partnership there. And yeah, I could see him moving if it's to a GP17 and a Ducati contract, but I just don't see where Avintia get a GP17 ahead of Pramac. Because going back to what you said about Brivio and the benefit of having extra bikes on the grid, we've seen that with Pramac. We've seen them uh, used to filter riders up to the factory team, develop engineers. And, you know, Pramac is clearly the team that would be in line for the same spec material as the factory team and I don't see where Avintia would suddenly jump ahead of that just to get Paul Espagaro on it if they're looking to do that surely you just sign Paul Espagaro to a Ducati contract put him at Pramac and uh, go from there but mm. I don't see a situation really where Scott Redding and Danilo Petrucci don't end up at Pramac for next year No and I spoke to Francesco Guidotti the the, the, the team principal of uh, of Pramac Racing um, on on Friday and he told us that his plan is not to is to keep that same rider lineup. Um Scott is a rider with a two year contract obviously there's an option after this year but he thinks he's you know he's looking at Scott as you know 
as a long-term prospect, as someone to develop this year to up to a level where he can be fighting for podiums perhaps next year. Um, and Petrucci's, a, you know, obviously he's been sidelined with injuries, but I think, you know, in Le Mans and Mugello, he showed that he's a more than capable top 10 runner, perhaps even higher. Um, you know, he's a funny guy. He's Italian. He gets on well with the crew. And he, uh, Guidotti said that Petrucci's just a guy that, you know, because of his attitude and the way he is, he's a, he's a real motivator, you know, and he gets that squad right behind him because of his, you know, because of his... His fun nature, his good-going nature, you know, and you know he's obviously showed that he's a he's a real talent as well. So I, I can't see any any big change in in, in Pramac for next year, um, unless you know, and uh, you know, uh, if, you know, if Guidotti said this to, or sorry, if um, if Chiabatti said this to to As, uh, perhaps it, it, it's a sign that you know Chicali are going to go even further ahead next year and put full factory bikes in in some of their satellite teams but to be honest i can't see that happening yeah because it, it also requires full factory engineers as well and it requires an awful lot more resources to be put into those teams well and in fairness and, uh, you know there are factory engineers in in each of those in each of those satellite teams this year you know um you know you have to say that the Ducati are kind of spreading its engineers out throughout those teams um but but yeah yeah and i think there's there's three in avintia two in aspar but it requires a lot more than that if you're sure. running gp 17s as well so i think it's something to keep an eye on but uh i wouldn't be i wouldn't be running out to place bets on polis bagaro to race in qatar on an avintia on the same spec bike as uh, jorge lorenzo yeah certainly not on the same spec bike yeah yeah for sure so that uh that sort of wraps up what's happened on the rider market neil so we'll just take a quick break from the show and um, when we come back We'll uh, talk about Magello. Hi everyone, it's Stephen English and you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast where again you can interact with all of us on the show and ask us your questions, give us your feedback and like the show. Okay, welcome back to the show and uh, Neil Morrison, we're going to talk now about an unbelievable day's racing at Mugello and the atmosphere was terrific. We saw the whole way through the weekend, Mugello was packed to the rafters and we saw some unbelievable racing on Sunday. It uh, obviously was quite a deflating moment for the home crowd when Valentino Rossi retired from the race, but uh, even with Rossi taken out, we saw a fantastic scrap for the win between Lorenzo and Marquez. But what was your takeaway moment from the MotoGP race? Um, I suppose it would probably, well, it would have to be that last lap, which is just sensational. Um, as good as anything we've seen this year against, you know, two of the classes heavyweights riding bikes that were, you know, quite vastly different in character um, and being separated by 0.019 at the end at the flag. Um, yeah, and it was fantastic. You know, it, it was once again a demonstration in Mark Marquez's ability to just work magic on that bike there's no way that the that honda should have been as close to the race win as as he got as he got it to um and i think it also jorge lorenzo in that race you know dispelled any sort of any sort of ideas that you know he's a one-trick pony he's a guy that can only you know operate at his best when he's out on his own in front that he can't really deal with um you know with other riders trying to ruffle him up and he's not really a fighter he showed in that final lap that he's prepared to do pretty much everything uh put it all on the line and really get his elbows out just like we you know just like we knew when he was back racing in 125s and 250s um yeah so it, it was just fantastic to see that 
Yeah, this this is a guy that got uh, banned from 250 racing for being a bit too aggressive on track. It wasn't uh, it, it wasn't out of character from what we saw from a young Lorenzo, what he did on uh, on Sunday. But uh, really, he dug deep. He showed how much he wanted it, and uh, he got the rewards. But that last lap, Neil, just such aggressive riding from both guys, but clean aggressive riding from both yeah. of them. And uh, I tell you what, like I thought for sure Marquez was going to win it whenever he started the last lap in second place but once he got to the front I didn't see Lorenzo getting past him but uh, really really impressive stuff from Lorenzo what what was Lorenzo's reaction like after the race yeah he was pretty pumped up obviously he was uh, he was delighted um, he you know he, he said he, on, on Saturday uh, after qualifying he was fifth I think it was um, you know the first time he'd been off the front row all year uh, he was just saying that to be honest he was finding it difficult to to get the bike to work to his liking um, with Michelin tyres he said he just didn't quite have the stability when he was braking um, the bike felt nervous a bit twitchy and it just couldn't quite get the couldn't quite get the best out of him um, so you know he said then on Sunday that they'd made improvements to that he, obviously if you looked at, um, at him into the first turn through most of that race he was he was stellar you know he was really really strong in the brakes um, but he still said that he didn't quite feel comfortable in the bike through the throughout the whole race um, and you know I think it showed also that when things aren't absolutely perfect on the bike Jorge can still be as devastatingly consistent as always maybe just not quite as fast as he was in the past but still devastatingly consistent yeah because I think when you watch the race back or when you watch it at the time you could see that uh, Lorenzo didn't have the same pace as definitely as Rossi Rossi looked super comfortable behind him but when you see what Lorenzo did on the last lap, it's also difficult to see him losing that race because he was able to put his bike into the places where it needed to be for him to be strong when he needed it to be strong. And uh, like I tell you what, I thought was I thought was really, I thought it was probably one of the best races we've seen from, from Lorenzo. Probably just because of what you said earlier on that people always say that he can't win races from behind. He needs to break away at the front. But this was definitely one of those races where he showed how deep he can dig and uh, exactly why you can't underestimate him. But for Mark Marquez, hugely impressive to to do what he did on, on that bike. And uh, as you said, finished 19 thousandths of a second behind. Five seconds ahead of the nearest Honda rider, which is, you know, half a second a lap around Mugello. Yeah, yeah. No, Marquez was fantastic. Really, really fantastic. Um, I was wasn't quite sure whether he'd be able to, to challenge for the victory on on Saturday after you know everything he was kind of saying um, on paper it seemed that Mugello wouldn't be quite as as, as bad for Honda as, as Le Mans was because it doesn't have those low gear acceleration uh, areas that Le Mans does um, but in fact what happened was all the kind of chicanes even though they were maybe only they were maybe in third gear acceleration points honda was still having some problems out of it you know um but marquez was just able to ride that thing so hard into the corners and through the corners um you only had to look at his line into casanova uh, the downhill right and then left he was basically his shoulder was you know dragging along the apex it was just staggering to see how you know how hard he was manhandling that back around the track um you know he was doing some really special things with it yeah that's always been a corner where rossi was always able to assert himself and show something extra compared to other riders but uh definitely marquez through there was something special this year but it was the same at uh i think arabiata as well he, he just 
he forced the bike to do things it didn't want to do. And that's something, that's what you get with Marquez that you don't get with the other Honda riders where he just, you know, he does just find that little bit extra. And this was a race, I think uh, when we were talking to David afterwards, David said that uh, in the past couple of rounds, we've seen Marquez look at it and think in terms of, I've got to get as many points for the championship as I can. Whereas this was a race where he seemed to take that approach for half of it. And then he looked at it and said, you know what, I can win this thing. And he was he was going to do all he could to try and win it. Yeah. And you look at the championship now, and there's ten points between Lorenzo and Marquez at the top. And unfortunately, given what happened to Valentino Rossi, he's now fallen. Was a thirty-seven points off the title lead. Yep, thirty-seven. You know, and, and it it was a shame because this really looked like a race where Rossi had all the speed to win. And uh, starting from pole position, it looked like he he really had that potential, but. Uh, Ultimately, an engine failure robbed him of the of the win. I would say so. I would say um, I would say Rossi's pace was probably he was probably able to do um, maybe a pace that was a few tenths faster than what Lorenzo was doing throughout the the majority of that race. I think Rossi said he would have been comfortable if he was lapping in the forty sevens. Lorenzo, I think, stayed pretty much all race in the forty eights, maybe bar one or two laps. Um, but yeah, Rossi looked really comfortable. He said after the race that there's no doubt in his mind he's stronger in 2016 than he was a year ago, and not just in qualifying, but in race. And you know, it's a, it's a devastating blow. He said Sunday night, you know, shit happens. One of those things, you, you just got to put it behind you and move on to the next round. But you could really sense the, the, the disappointment in his, uh, in his voice, in his body language. He was really down. But looking at the positives, um, that would have been twice... Uh, or that could have been twice that Rossi had gone, you know, toe to toe with Lorenzo in a dry race in 2016 and come out on top, you know, Jerez and Mugello. And that's something that we didn't really see a lot of um, in 2015, you know. So I think you would have to go along with that. Rossi, okay, he's 37 points behind, but he probably is in better shape um, than he was a year ago. And, you know, you wouldn't really bet against him going to Barcelona and winning, re- winning there, you know, rain or rain or dry. Yeah, because I think if you look back to last year, obviously Rossi built his title campaign on consistency rather than out-and-out speed. He had his wins, but uh, most of the time it was a case of taking advantage of other people's misfortune to still finish second or third. When he had the opportunities to win, he took them. Whether it was Argentina or Assen, he made sure that he was in the right position at the right time to win. Whereas something like his Jerez win this year, like it was just dominance. And he looked like he could do the same again in uh, in Mugello and it's the kind of thing that you know it it's impossible to underestimate Rossi it's impossible to rule him out but when you see him perform like this when you see him put him on, put it on on the front row or pole position like he did in Mugello it shows just how strong he still is but those 37 points it's also for me difficult to see how he makes them up without misfortune for the other riders now obviously enough we've seen the Honda is so difficult to ride that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a vast stretch of the imagination to imagine a Marquez crash, but 37 points is a lot to give up to your teammate whenever we know that that Yamaha is so strong. Mm, yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of those things where 
37 points behind one rider, yeah, that's tough. But when you're 27 points behind another rider that is riding as brilliantly as Marquez is, you know, it's a, it's a real big ask, a real big ask. But then, you know, coming up to Barcelona, you can make up some ground there. Aston, he won there last year, you know, in the Saxon ring, he beat Lorenzo too. So, you know, I, I, I would wait until the summer break, until the very, the very earliest um, before riding Valentino Rossi off, you know. But just but one other thing, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that on Friday morning, um, FP1 was held in damp conditions. Um, the track wasn't wet enough to be um, for riders to use full wets, um, effectively use full wets, and it wasn't dry enough to, for riders to use slicks. So Rossi didn't see the point in using the intermediate tires at all because he knew that, you know, it was going to be sunny on Saturday and Sunday. He spent the entire session working on starts, on practice starts. Uh, he did this from pit lane, I think, eight times. You know, he was trying different settings. Um, he had a few different, I think, throttle bodies uh, to test. And, and it was something that his team were going to work on throughout the weekend, but they thought, oh, we'll just do it all in one go. And, you know, it's it's that kind of it's that kind of dedication and work ethic and intelligence, really, to, to optimize the time of a week race weekend that is still just so impressive from Rossi that he's still at 20, 37 years old willing to, you know, not put his feet up in the garage for a session and think, okay, let's focus on this afternoon to, you know, work at something, work at his defect and to continue learning. Yeah, because like, I, I definitely wouldn't rule Rossi out, especially this year where everyone's still got so much to come to terms with in terms of Michelin electronics and different things. But as you said, it's that work work ethic. It's that uh, time that he goes to the ranch to to work on the flat track bikes or, you know, just work with uh, the kids in the VO46 Academy. Like we, uh, myself and Tony were coming coming home from Coda and uh, we were on the same flight as Rossi and all of his, uh, all of his friends. And whenever we got off the plane, like Rossi obviously had flown up in the, the front of the plane and, and me and Tony were in the back. But he was standing there waiting for all of his crew to come off. And away from the racetrack, it's always it's always interesting to see how riders are. And Rossi was so relaxed, just waiting around the airport, just in his element that he's there, he's with his mates. And you see that just transition in everything around him. Whereas by the end of last season, we definitely didn't see that. We didn't see him relaxed. We didn't see him just chilled out whereas now I think he's found that comfort level again that he needs and that's why as you said just being smart enough to think like are you going to use the intermediate tyre is there any benefit to actually using an intermediate tyre for a session probably not whenever you're going to be flag to flag racing anyway you know and and you'll come in and you'll switch bikes so what's the benefit of that maybe it is more beneficial to go out and do eight practice starts and it's that uh, as you said Neil that uh, just awareness of using your your time to to the best effect that uh, I think that's what Rossi's biggest strength is and that's where having you know 21 years of Grand Prix experience also plays in and yeah. I think that uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to see him go and do you know a, a series of wins now whereas I think 12 months ago it still would have been a surprise whereas yeah. now he just looks like he's more comfortable more confident more ready and uh, 37 points as I said it's a big margin but it's also not an insurmountable margin Yeah. but I think uh, when you look at uh, that top three though they're just so strong right now yeah, they really are. Yeah, and another thing that um, you know we're, we're talking about there is Rossi's qualifying, and um, a big deal was obviously made out of him 
getting a toll from Vinales on Saturday um, and using that to great effect to get pole position. And it wasn't the first time. I think um, we saw it in pretty much every race um, this year, maybe bar one. Uh, we definitely saw it in, in Texas. We saw it in Argentina. We saw it in Qatar as well. Uh, Rossi and Vinales out on track together, more or less. Uh, and we saw it in Le Mans also um, out, out on track together. And you just wonder, you know, whether this was a, a tactic from Rossi um, you know, during the off season, how can he improve his qualifying performances? Perhaps in Qatar, he exited the pit lane, you know, at a certain time and realized Vinales was doing the same thing and saw that it worked benefit, you know, the benefits that, that, that it had, uh, that tactic had there. I think he finished fourth there and Vinales on the front row. Perhaps even from there, he thought to himself, okay, maybe if I kind of go out a little bit later than everyone else and Maverick, I'll wait for Maverick and see when he comes out and we can maybe give each other a toe. It's just pure speculation on my part. But even again, that is a different tactic. It's something that we haven't really seen Rossi do before, you know, always running with a similar guy or a same guy in qualifying. You know, and again, it shows that he's thinking ways to improve. Well, we used to always see him go out on track behind Marquez. If you remember Marquez's rookie year and his second year, but uh, obviously enough, those two guys uh, aren't uh, looking to share any track space at the moment. But we, we talk about how much potential Rossi has gotten from his package. But unfulfilled potential in Magello, it's got to be given to Vinales and Iannone. They both had the potential there to be... Well, I know Iannone finishes on the podium, but he had the potential to win that race. Yeah. Vinales clearly had potential for being closer to the front as well. Sure. Obviously... Both riders have said technical problems held them back, but uh, what was the what was your reaction to it, Neil? After you've talked to them, after you've talked to some of the engineers, just what were the actual issues for them? Yeah, well, um, Vinales said that he had an electrical problem that he got off the line quite well, he started quite well, but it was on that run to the first corner where it almost felt as if um, the pit lane uh, speed limiter had engaged in the bike and it you know cost him just enough time for him to get swallowed up by the entire pack and he said it basically cleared itself by changing gear going up gear and it, you know it started working okay but by that stage he was swamped and you know he kind of i guess that take quite a bit to you know get your head around that and there's probably a bit of frustration in your you know building up inside where you're thinking you were going to be up in and, in and around the podium positions and you're down in tenth or something like that um i wasn't sure that you know from the pace the finale showed after that in the race, I wasn't sure that he showed that he could have been in the victory fight, like he said he could have been after the race. Yeah, that it makes sense though if if he if there was some sort of an issue with the limiter that once he shifts up, that it would cut off because most of the bikes do have it where once you you shift out of out of the gear that uh, will switch off the limiter. But I definitely don't think he had the potential. I don't think he had the pace to go consistently with those guys. Uh, that were fighting for the win or the podium. I think Ian One, whenever he came through, definitely looked faster than most of the rest of the guys. And the way that he bridged that gap to Pedroza and Davizioso showed how much more potential he had. Yeah. And uh, definitely, this was another race that gets away from Ducati. And as I said at the top of the show, like I'm a big fan of Ian One. I think he's got a lot of potential. But the reason that Ducati haven't won races... It's hard not for it to to be reflected on on the riders that they have, and that's why they bring in Lorenzo for next year. 
yeah, absolutely. And Ian only said he had a clutch problem. It's something that's been hindering his starts through the year, but it, it affected them more so, even more so here at Mugello. Um, and yeah, you looked at his pace from lap five, lap six, he was pretty much matching what Lorenzo could do. We knew that, you know, Marquez's bike clearly wasn't the fastest, uh, the strongest bike around Mugello. Lorenzo was still having some issues in the race and that weren't allowing him to, you know, ride at the speed of which he wanted. So, yeah, I think that was Ian O'Neill's race. Once Rossi went out, I think, um, you know, Ian O'Neill definitely could have done, uh, you know, something really memorable there. And and when Lorenzo was speaking to the Spanish press after the press conference, he said as much, you know, he said that, you know, to be honest, if if, if, if Ian O'Neill got a good start, if, if Rossi hadn't gone out, he probably would have finished ahead of me. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, again, Le Mans as well, because I definitely think that Ian O'Neill looked like he had the potential to win there as well. That bike... That bike is clearly strong and I think it's just gonna it's just gonna take something to click for those riders to have a clear race weekend and uh, then we could see that first Ducati win since the Stoner era. But uh, right now we'll move on to Catalonia, another track that should be strong for Ducati Neil, and obviously where Ducati actually had their first win as well with Lars Caparossi in two thousand and three. Yeah, sure, sure. Although it's it's difficult to it's difficult to look past Yamaha again at uh, at Catalonia. Um, last year, I think Ducati had a bit of a nightmare. Uh, Ian only Ian I think finished. I'm not sure outside the top three anyway. And Dovizioso crashed. I think it could be it could be quite difficult. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes in how it goes in Barcelona. I think for me, like one of the key things is that. Uh, they just need to keep building and keep being being confident because I think there is clearly that potential in that bike. It's clearly a strong package and it's just a case of trying to get the most from it. And as we said, like that's where the unfulfilled promise comes in right now for both Vinales and Ianona. And it's 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 easy to it's easy to hype up Vinales because he has shown so much potential. But you also need to uh, now that he's got that factory Yamaha contract, he needs to ride for the the second third of the season so to speak and really just just progress that Suzuki get more podiums because at the end of the day the podium in Le Mans looks great on the results sheet but it comes about whenever three guys crash in front of you so that's where I think that uh, we still haven't seen the full potential that we can from that Suzuki in his hands hmm. absolutely absolutely but uh, that brings us Neil to the end of uh, the MotoGP section as well so we'll just take another break and when we come back we'll talk a little bit about Moto2 and Moto3 as well Hi everyone thanks for listening to the show and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at PaddockPassPod and uh, if you want to interact with us ask us some questions give us some feedback it's always very appreciated by everyone from the show Okay, welcome back to the show, and uh, Neil Morrison will just be talking now about the Moto2 and Moto3 classes as well. Obviously, we saw incredible racing in both classes, really close finishes, but uh, Moto2 was a bit of a challenge to actually get the race started. It was the first time this year that we've actually seen the, the quick start procedure in place in the MotoGP paddock and obviously for me coming from the World Superbike paddock we've actually seen that in use quite a lot and it is a system that works quite well but unfortunately it just didn't seem to click uh, in Mugello and just for any of our listeners that aren't aware of the procedure basically what happens is if there's a red flag and the race is shortened we see what's termed as the quick start procedure and this is where all of the riders will reform on the grid with 
you won't have all the grid girls and all of the mechanics on the grid. It's just the rider and one mechanic and then they'll come to the grid and a minute later they'll start the siding lap and then the race will start the next time around. But uh, Neil, I know you talked to Mike Webb after the race and uh, the race director, what did what did he have to say about what went wrong actually with the start procedure? Yeah, well, he said uh, basically there was two real two kind of problems from uh, you know from which the the incident stemmed from. Um, the first of those was that several teams uh, weren't quite aware of the rules. Um, whenever there is a red flag, as you mentioned, the riders have to come back into the pit lane. They're then given the time whenever pit lane will open, um, and they basically have sixty seconds after this time to to get out and onto the grid. Um, I think there were eight riders that didn't comply with that that took longer than 60 seconds to exit pit lane um, but then the problem was that those riders that took longer than 60 seconds they weren't stopped basically at the pit lane exit so they went up and took a place on the grid um, when they were on the grid race direction then tried to get them off and when they realized that there were eight riders that uh, that had you know not complied with the rules um, Mike Webb realized he was going to have to redraw up the grid and because you know um, the, the you know the, the grid had already been there for quite some time. Um, it was a hot, it was a hot day. Temperatures were rising. There was a danger of you know bikes overheating. I think Danny Kent uh, said that his bike had got up to about 120, 125 degrees. Um, you know, at this point, he realised that okay, you know what, we just need to, we just need to call a halt to this and everyone come back in and then we'll reform the grid after this again so it was it was very confusing and you know kind of after what happened in Qatar the season opener with uh, the kind of jump star fiasco you know perhaps didn't look the best um, and Mike Webb in fairness you know kind of held up his hands and said the race direction could have managed the situation better you know they're still getting getting their heads exactly around how to carry out this rule um, but yeah basically he said it was it stemmed from you know several teams not having a full grasp full working knowledge of what was going on I spoke to Sam Lowe's afterwards and he was you know you know, he said basically it's the team's fault um, he was aware his team were totally aware that once the pit lane opened they had 60 seconds to get out of pit lane so whenever that time rolled around he was out he was out of his garage and you know going up pit lane but some guys just weren't quite as sharp as that um, and that's really what happened and uh, when the race did actually get started Neil we saw Johan Zarco take his second win but uh Lorenzo Baldessari came so close to actually being able to to take his first win of uh, of his Grand Prix career, but again another last lap. It came down to three hundredths of a second between them, and uh, it really looked like we could have had uh, something special with Baldessari winning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, you know, Sam Lowe's, I don't think will thank me for saying this, but in some ways it was a good thing that the race was stopped um, because if Sam had got to the front of the pack and looked as though he had the pace to, to, to break clear, speaking to him afterwards and speaking to him on Saturday, it certainly seemed that he was comfortable um, with, you know, he, he basically spent the entire weekend working towards the 21 lap race and making sure that he was as strong on that 20th lap as he was in the second the race was then restarted over 10 laps and he was kind of a bit flummoxed, you know, guys fitted soft tires um, and he decided to just go back out with the, with the setup he had and really just wasn't quite fast enough. He just wasn't able to feel as comfortable in that second half uh, or in that second part of the race, um, which is a shame for him. But, you know, in some ways good for us because, as you said, you know, the, the battle between Zarco and, and Baldessari, there was just no, uh, nothing, you know, everything was just left out in that track. It was really bar to bar stuff and um, you know Zarco you know you, you kind of felt that here's this young Italian kid racing in front of his home fans hadn't really shown 
a speed quite at the front like he had there. Uh, and you, you maybe thought like for Zarco, okay, and you know, having to think about the championship, maybe he would have backed down, but you know, he gave as good as he got, and it was it was great. It was you know the best Moto Two race we've seen this year for sure. Yeah, and it it does still bring back Zarco into that championship race as well. He's seventeen points off Lowe's in the championship standings now, so it is actually quite close between the top four in the championship: Lowe's, Rins. Tom Lugy and uh, Johan Zarco. So it does actually look like Moto2 could actually be quite an interesting championship this year. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a very interesting championship that won't be decided until the end. Um, you know, and uh, you know, and Rins wasn't in there. We have to say that Rins was Rins was one of the guys uh, who didn't leave the pit lane um, in that allotted sixty seconds. He was penalised, put to the back of the grid, uh, but he still managed to ride his way, uh, ride his way through pretty much most of the field to finish inside the top six. Yeah, and, and we say that uh, Moto Two looks like it could go down to the end of the season, but uh, Moto Three, do you think is there any chance that Brad Binder has now got a forty-nine point lead after six races? Yeah, I know. Like Binder is just surfing, you know, such a wave of confidence right now. He is, uh, he is, he really is impressive. Um, you know, and it's just, it is incredible to see you know, that transformative effect that, uh, you know, the first Grand Prix win can have on you. Um, you know, he went 70-odd races without having a Grand Prix win. Now he has three on the trot, three vastly different types of race wins as well. You know, he had the back, to fl- yeah, the back of the field to the front in, in Jerez. You know, he had a last lap kind of slog in Le Mans, and then he was just in this Banzai uh, 20-odd rider group in, in Mugello, um, and he had the brains to go to the front of that race and, uh, and win it. You know, it was it was really fantastic stuff. Yeah, and six podiums from the, the six races so far as well this year for Binder. Could easily have won in Qatar as well. So definitely just that kind of starts the season that I think we've seen from the great uh, lightweight class champions, champions, whether it was Vinales when he won the Moto3 crown or you know different riders that just they win their races when they can. And, and indeed, it uh, compares a lot to what we saw Danny Kent do at the start of last season as well. And uh, Binder even has more points already, just a couple more points compared to Kent last year. But uh, really strong stuff from Binder. And I think, uh, you know, he, he's taken advantage of other riders having their problems, whether it was Jorge Navarro being taken out in Mugello mm-hmm. or whether it's been Antonelli or Fanati. You know, it just looks like Binder consistently is able to find the right place at the right time and that's what it takes to win in the Moto3 class. Sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was speaking to Tom Jojic after the uh, after the Mugello Grand Prix weekend and he was saying that, you know, from what he could see, that was Fanati's race. He felt Fanati definitely had the pace to win that race and you could see even whenever Fanati went out with a broken chain, what an awful way to, you know, depart your home Grand Prix. Um, you saw the pace was some two seconds slower than it was in qualifying on Saturday. Um, you know, and that's just part and parcel of a huge, hectic, you know, 20 rider scrap for the lead. Um, but Fanati looked like he had that one, you know, had the pace anyway to, to really to really do that, to kind of up the pace in the final laps. But it didn't happen. And, you know, what Binder did was was really, really impressive. Um, you know, speaking to Tom Jojic over the weekend, speaking to uh, Juan Leve, who works in that Red Bull IOKDM squad, you know, just saying that, you know, Binder could have done this last year, but the KTM at the start of 2015 was just a little bit harder to ride. Um, it's taken basically from Mizano last year where they introduced a new chassis, um, which was a, a big upgrade, I think, on, on what, what they had before. Uh, it's taken really there for Brad to 
find his confidence, to find the consistency of racing at the front every weekend. And Tom told me that basically he feels that if Miguel Oliveira wasn't in the title fight last year, Brad would have won a race towards the end of last year. There were one or two occasions where he was in the leading group and, you know, Miguel was there. Brad maybe thought, okay, it's better to, you know, Miguel's fighting for the championship. He's my teammate. Maybe I shouldn't put a crazy Banzai last lap move on him right there, you know. So, um, you know, fair play to Brad for that. Uh, having the stable off-season, stable winter, working towards this season, everything was was quite smooth. You know, he's clearly reaping the benefits from it now. Yeah, because I think one of those races was clearly Sepang. And I remember after Sepang, uh, we were we were at the press conference and obviously the press conference room at Sepang has taken on a, a very different persona since then. But uh, I was talking to, ben, uh, to Binder about it and uh, just that was a race where obviously he, I think he finished uh, third that day. Right. Second, Maybe was it? Second or third. Uh, Oliveira won, and it was one of those races where I think that uh, Binder definitely could have won, but, uh, you know, thought in terms of his teammate. And I asked him, what's the difference that uh, racing for Io actually makes? And he said that one of the key things was that they tick all the boxes to allow the rider to concentrate on what he needs to concentrate on, and they're just able to allow the rider to get the most from himself. And uh, so far this season, we've definitely seen... Binder capitalise on that and get the, the most from himself. I think just another thing also is that uh, in 2015 Brad was sharing his crew chief with uh, with Johan Zarco, uh, Massimo Branchini, who had worked with Danny Kent uh, in the year before actually, uh, was working with both Brad in Moto3 and Johan in, in Moto2. Obviously that those teams are both under the, the kind of Akiayo motorsport umbrella. Um, this year he has moved to work with a guy called Jordi Gallardo, who was uh, Oliveira's crew chief last year. You know, having a crew chief that is solely focused on you and what you're doing, um, I think also might have, um, you know, have something to do with it. Also, the fact that he's also in just a two rider team. Um, last year, he was with, you know, three riders. I think Oliveira was in there. And Steve, remind me who else was in that team last year? Uh, Oliveira ha- and Carol Hanneke. Carol Hanneke, well. of course. Yeah, sure, sure. Exactly. This it's hard year. to believe that you forgot that Carol Hanneke was racing the Moto 3 last year. <laughs> Carol Hanneke, yeah, yeah. What's that? Whatever happened to him? Um, but yes, yes. So having a two rider team, uh, Brad's teammate is Bosch ben, ben Schneider, who is a class rookie. You know, Brad's clearly the number one focus there. And I think that's also helping him out. Yeah, definitely. And, and Neil, you had three great races at uh, Mugello last weekend. And uh, I really think that this weekend at Donington Park as well, I think we're going to have three great races in World Superbikes. Uh, will you be sitting down to watch? I shall be. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I have uh, a stag to a stag to, to attend this weekend. So it may be difficult to catch the races live, but I shall certainly be catching up on my uh, on my Dorna um, on my Dorna world feed that I have uh, that bought access to on Sunday night. Well, what's actually quite good as well is you can uh, use the live experience app, Neil, and you get the live timing, all the news and also the commentary from myself and Greg. So well worth it for your stag do. You're preaching to the choir here. I'm already a member. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think though this weekend it should actually be a really interesting race because Tom Sykes, obviously, he's coming to Donington Park. He's won the last six races at Donington. And uh, this could be an opportunity where we actually see a different winner at Donington than uh, Tom Sykes. But uh, definitely he, he's going to start off as the, the man to beat this weekend. But I think uh, right now it looks like the Ducatis are stronger. I think Jonathan Ray, 
This is where it's actually been quite interesting for Ray in comparison to 12 months ago because it's been a big challenge for him so far this year to actually get the most from that uh, Kawasaki ZX-10R, but uh, he's still been able to lead the championship and win a lot of races. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching it. Uh, watching it, Sepang. Sykes was so strong in that first race. Um, you know, was that was that a surprise to you that he was, uh, I think he ended up winning that race by about five seconds or so? Yeah, I think it was... It was a, a lot like Thailand as well from Sykes where I think a lot of people expected the tyre to drop off and different things. And I know that uh, I was getting a lot of texts from different people, especially in the GP paddock, just uh, wondering when the tyre was going to drop for Sykes. But uh, I think in the in the commentary, uh, myself and Greg were talking about it and, and I did say that uh, even if the tyre drops, he's built up such a big lead that it would be it'd be a big challenge to lose the race from where he was. And ultimately Sykes couldn't, uh, the tire stayed together. He, he was able to win by a comfortable margin and really dominate the race. But the, I know from talking to a lot of different riders after the race, they were definitely shocked that the tire was able to last, but uh, you know, really strong performance by Sykes and shows again, just how good a superbike rider he is and why he's, well, he is probably the third best rider on the grid right now. I think it's, it's fair to say that Jonathan Ray Chaz Davis are a cut above him in terms of consistency, but uh, Sykes on his day showed, you know, in Sepang race one, showed in Thailand that, uh, you know, he's very tough to beat. And that's why this weekend at Donington is really key. He's won there the last three years. He's done the double. So this is the race where he needs to show up again and show exactly what he can do. But I think that the one thing that's in Sykes's favour is that He's arguably out of the championship race now and he can just race to win. And uh, if he can come away from Donington with a couple of race wins and move on to Misano, then uh, it definitely does give him a lot of strength. But uh, I know that for, for you, Neil, watching Sepang, uh, seeing Nicky Hayden win a race again was was a pretty cool thing. And it shows, again, just how strong a rider Nicky actually is as well. Yeah, absolutely. Nicky was uh, Nicky was just fantastic to watch in that second race. Um, you know, it was it was it was kind of like watching you know rewinding back, rewinding the clock back to two thousand and five, around then, and seeing you know vintage Nicky uh, at his peak. He, you know, he was pretty unflappable because you know, he was being put under quite some quite severe pressure in those closing laps by a charging Davide Giuliano and I think you know basically his lead was hacked down to about one second as they started the last lap but you know Nicky didn't flinch and, and managed to hold out for a famous win yeah and I remember I was talking to a couple of the guys after the race and uh, when they saw Nicky just charge off into the lead at uh at, at, on the first lap a lot of them said to me like they, they thought to themselves fuck this is a guy that hasn't ridden those Pirellis in the wet you know there's no way that uh, he's going to be able to maintain that pace and win the race but uh, Nicky after the race said that uh, you know it's often said that uh, you can't win a race on the first lap but in the wet you certainly can yeah. and uh, you know he said that he went all guns blazing he wanted to get to the front he knew that the track surface was going to be grippy because of the lap times that uh, we saw from the super sport session that was in the wet and he said that he just had total confidence that the new track surface was going to work and uh, the changes that uh, were made to the surface definitely yielded a lot of grip for the riders we saw you know times in the wet that were i think they were only 10 seconds off the pace of the dry and around a long lap like sepang that's really impressive and shows just how good a job that uh, Jarno Zafelli and his crew had been able to do to to create a track surface that uh, gave an awful lot of confidence to the riders and for Nicky 
Definitely great to see him pick up his first win since Laguna in 06. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how do you see this weekend going then? Do you foresee uh, Sykes double? I think he's won, uh, he's done the double there for the last two years. Is that right? Or is it even the last three years? Yeah, the last three years. Last so three. his first double was the, the title winning year in 13. And to be honest, it's, it's hard to look past Tom for this weekend. And that's why, as, as I said, it's really important for someone like Chaz Davis with a lot of points to make up on Jonathan Ray. If Davis can pick up a win and have Sykes between him and Ray, that could be nine points that he can make up on, uh, on Ray. But uh, definitely Sykes starts as the pre-race favourite. And uh, you'd, you wouldn't, you'd, be, you'd be a foolish man to bet against him in a lot of ways and, and indeed you can actually still get good odds on Sykes to win this weekend so could be worth throwing a, a tenner of your stag do money on it Neil <laughs> absolutely there'll be but, none of that left by Sunday so <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, what's going to be pretty cool to see though as well is Cameron Bobier making his, his world superbike uh, bow for in place of Sylvain Gintoli on the Paddy Yamaha obviously Bobier is a, is a rider that we've heard an awful lot of talk about because of you know we're waiting for this next fast young american to come through and now he gets the opportunity to to race on the world stage and uh, i think it'll be interesting to see exactly how he fares um i posted something on twitter that said you know the last time that uh, or well, one of the times that crescent ran uh an american as a replacement rider at donington park didn't uh, work out too badly with ben spees and uh, i know that uh, a few people came back to say you know a couple of other examples of americans that uh, raced for crescent as well so they're not afraid to bring in a young american and i think that uh, you know bobby would do well to be uh, the next ben spees but uh, he definitely looks like he's got a lot of potential and i know that uh, when we were at uh, coda this year neil we went out to have a look at the uh, moto america session at one stage and uh, he definitely looks like he's he's a quick kid and and looks like he could be that guy that that could be the next american to, to make the step through but uh definitely a big challenge to come in at donington park yeah it's a big challenge indeed um i come across to attract a, i think maybe maybe he raced there in 2009 when he was doing grand prix uh he was in ktm squad i think wasn't he um yeah that, he was mark marquez's teammate, right, in was the marquez's KTM teammate. yeah but yeah I'm, I'm just really excited because i think it was back in 2013 that um that you know ben spees was asked at uh, one of the one of the races in america i don't know whether it was at uh, laguna or maybe it was in in uh, indy um you know who he saw as the next american coming through and it, you know for a couple of years we've now heard of Bobby being you know this kind of young exciting talent without ever having the chance to see him on the world stage so yeah I'm excited about it um, he is leading the, the, the Moto America standards at the moment um, you know he's a pretty good track record um, and obviously the R1 although not quite um, not quite the same machine you know he has experience on that Yamaha R1 so it should be interesting to see how he goes um, what, what do you think would be a realistic aim for him this weekend well to be honest we've seen the uh, the Yamaha is a good bike but it's still not a match for the Kawasaki's and, and uh, the Hondas and the Ducati's so I think if he can come away with a, you know a top 10 finish it's quite good I think it's, it is the kind of one that uh, really he's got no real pressure on him he can go, he can learn, and I think uh, indeed having uh, Alex Lowe's on the other side of the box, just recovering from collar from a fractured collarbone as well, it uh, it it helps Bobby as well, just because we'll probably see Lowe's a little bit more low key compared to what we would have expected from a home ground from a home race. So I think for Bobby, if he can come out and just score points, like I'll be honest, um, World Superbikes really competitive class. 
top to bottom a lot of quick riders and uh, just to be able to to score points is actually quite an achievement whenever you come into the class we even saw with Nicky Hayden how it's taken him a few rounds to really get fully up to speed so I think Bobier, if he can come in and just have a solid weekend don't crash just uh, give good feedback to Yamaha I think it could be massive for his career yeah, absolutely. And, and um, have you spoken to Alex since he since his crash in race two at Sepang? I've heard he's had his collarbone plated, and he, he's he's definitely planning the ride at Donington. Yeah, I talked to Alex during the week a couple of times just to see how he was getting on, and the surgery seems to have gone well. He was taking a couple of days off afterwards just to uh, to rest up, but uh, he's back in training, and and he definitely wants to race this weekend. And you know, I, I think there shouldn't be too much of an issue really for him like we see a lot of riders come back from a collarbone without missing a, a round but obviously every injury is different and it just depends on on how serious it was but uh, definitely wants to race this weekend so hopefully he'll be able to to get through the weekend yeah and i've heard sun sun is forecasted first sun at the northwest for this year next sun at donny park world Superbikes. what's going on uh, i'm not really sure but uh, i do know whenever yous were having hailstones and thunder and lightning at uh, Magello, <laughs> it was absolutely glorious in ireland but uh, it always is neil as, as you know yourself and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah sun at the northwest that's not that big of a surprise <laughs> sure, sun on, sure. Sunny on race day at the Northwest. So yeah, I'll give you give you that. <laughs> I know that uh, obviously once we get through Donington, uh, we're into the TT as well. And Tony's flown back to back to the Rock this evening just to get himself geared up. Uh, what was he like at Magello? Because I remember a couple of years ago, he was uh, he was very antsy to get back to the to the Isle of Man for the TT. Yeah, he was uh, antsy. I think is is the right word. Yeah, he was he was gearing himself up for it. You know, basically, if you know Tony, you know that he basically lives for two two weeks every year, and the fact that that those two weeks are edging ever closer. Uh, we're now under a week until first practice gets underway at the Isle of Man on the Isle of Man for for 2016 uh, event. You'll know that uh, yeah, he's I wouldn't quite say foaming at the mouth, but getting towards that level of excitement. It's uh, it's been a few years since you were at the TT, Neil. Any plans to get back to the island soon? Yeah, I, yeah, I was full of good intentions to go this year, but it's just it's it's difficult, you know. It's difficult. Um, I hope hoping this year is going to be a bit of a long shot. Um, hopefully there'll be a bit more free time around uh, around the start of June next year, and I'll be able to make it across. Yourself, Steve? Per- you going across? Yeah, I uh, fly back from Donington on Monday and then out to the island on Tuesday morning. So I got 10 days at the TT. I think I fly back on the Thursday before the senior. So I'll get uh, most of the week's racing, but uh, unfortunately won't be able to stay for the senior this year. Okay, okay. But still 10 days is no no bad thing. Well, I'm not going to lie. Last year, it was it was an endurance test for me. And uh, I think, uh, you know, 10 days will be more than enough for me this week as well. But uh, definitely an experience unlike any other. And uh, I think uh, myself and Tony have a few plans to be able to do a bit of a TT special uh, Paddock Pass podcast as well, which could be something something really interesting. Fantastic. Yes, yes. I very much look forward to hearing that. I shall be tuning into Manx Radio uh, on Saturday evening. I think that's when, when first practice kicks off. But yeah, uh, throughout next week, I'll be uh, I'll be sitting in front of my computer, live timing up on my uh, up my computer screen, see everything that's going on. Yeah, Manx Radio TT with the boys of summer blaring out. Sure, it's exactly what you need, Neil, at the start of June. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I won't have any hostility from my fellow stag do friends uh, with that one. 
Uh, well, that takes us to the the end of the show, Neil. So thanks again for for joining us. And uh, yeah. this was a uh, this was uh, another good recap just of what we saw at Magello. And uh, as you said, Neil, we'll just look forward to the TT and Donington Park World Superbikes as well. So thanks everyone for listening. And again, uh, just uh, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, and. Uh, just like the show on iTunes. Give us a rating. It really helps a lot of other fans to follow the show. Hopefully next week, normal service will be resumed and David Emmett will be back on the show and uh, you won't have to listen to me. But uh, <laughs> thanks for listening today and uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Professional. Professional Steve English. That TV experience just fucking rubbing off we'll have no comments about rubbing off anyway with you Morrison but uh, <laughs> good show Neil good show good fun <laughs>